Just a warning this morning. What we're gonna cover is my sweet spot. So if I get a little fired up, uh, just telling you it's coming. Because we get to talk about truth today. We talk about truth because Jesus does. And in our culture, it's an important question to ask, why is truth important? Let me just kind of set the ground rules here for truth itself. Truth can be put to the test. Truth stands the test of time. Truth is not afraid of challenge. Truth is not afraid to be found out. Truth, when it's applied, brings clarity. And when truth is applied, even if it's uncomfortable for a moment, it is way better than being deceived in the long run. But does our culture value truth? Earlier in our corporate prayer before service, Deshaun said a phrase, I wish I could remember what he said, but our culture has this sense of what is truth to you? Live your own truth. And is that really true? Can we live our own truth? Can something be blue and green at the same time? Can something be black and white at the same time? Can something be wrong and right at the same time? If you turn on the news, they would make the case that it is. And our culture cares more about perception and feelings than it does the truth. So what does that mean for the believer? Why is truth important for us? Mark Twain said, it ain't the parts of the Bible I can't understand that bother me. It's the parts I can. The reality is that truth reveals. That truth exposes. And the world around us does not want to be exposed. But if you stand on the truth, you don't fear the light shining on your life. We see this all the time in churches, right? That people run from what exposes them, avoid things that makes them, make them uncomfortable. This doctrine makes me uncomfortable. So I'm going to avoid it. This doctrine makes this person uncomfortable. So I'm going to avoid it for them. But what you're really saying and what we say when we do that is we care more about pleasing people than we do about pleasing God. Because Jesus tells us that the truth brings freedom. We're going to get into that this morning. I've even heard Christians use it as an insult toward me saying he's just a truth guy. You got to get with the times. Like I, I know you believe the Bible and everything, but but we, we've got people to appeal to. Of course, we believe God's word and we'll get right back to it after we finish up with our ideas. This is how many churches approach ministry. But not only will the truth set you free from your sin, it will, tra- it will set you free from people pleasing, which is such a heavy burden to bear. The sad truth today is that many will sacrifice truth on the altar of love. People want God to be loving so bad that they will deny who he declares himself to be in the name of creating a God of love. What is the love of God? Romans 5 tells us that the love of God is that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly, dead in our sins. It's us. That's the truth. That our sins are so heinous that it required the death of Christ. That is love. We talked about this last week. We are dead in our sins. Everyone is dead in their sin apart from Christ. Now, this is important to mention, too. People like me will sacrifice love on the altar of truth, and that's not biblical either. So you got to be careful that we, we balance the two and we speak the truth in love. 
Because truth is only truth to believers because it was done in love. And that truth is what saves. So what is the truth? The truth is the whole counsel of God. But Paul tells us in Colossians 1.5 that the word of truth is the gospel. All of the counsel of God is summed up in the gospel. The person and work of Jesus Christ. All of scripture bears witness to him. The way, the truth, and the life. There's a reason why our church vision statement begins with teach truth. Because if you are not founded in truth, if you are not founded in the person and work of Jesus Christ and the revelation of God, you can start anywhere you want and build anything you want. First things first, we start with the truth of God's word. When we start with God's word, Christ is exalted. When Christ is exalted, our affections and love for the Lord are stirred. And only when we are founded in truth, Christ is exalted and we love the Lord, then can we lead one another in the spirit. A lot of people will try to reverse that. We'll be a good example first and we'll get to truth eventually. I'm going to address that this morning. But one of the lies of our culture is we're told in order to grow a church and to build a church, you need to have a lot of money. You need to have big programs. You need to have business strategy meetings. You need to have marketing consultants, detailed processes, up-to-date facilities and technology. I know this to be true because I get letters every week trying to sell me on one of these programs. We are told that you need to pay attention to the newest trends and to play the newest songs, tell lots of jokes and stories to keep people's attention. We're told that we're to avoid difficult topics. Just love people into the kingdom. There's one little problem. None of that is biblical. No one was ever saved in scripture by any of those things. No one has ever grown in Christ by any of these outward things that, that, that we prop up because we don't think the gospel is good enough. People all the time try to make excuses for Jesus. Oh, we'll just focus on the parts that we like. We saw last week where the, the, the greatest responses we've seen in all of the New Testament were when people were told, repent, you have killed Christ. You are dead in your sins. And they turn and believe. And that's why here we will preach Christ and him crucified. We will proclaim the gospel and expose the lies of the culture. We will love people because Jesus did. We will invest in people and disciple people because Jesus did. And we do this all because we want to give God the glory and honor and praise he deserves. It's a great week for a members interest meeting. Let me get off my soapbox because we do have a text to get to. So that kind of sets the foundation for why we approach the scriptures the way we do and what Jesus is actually doing this morning. Because last week he told them some difficult things. He told them three times, you are dead in your sins. And in verse 30 of chapter 8, we're told that as he was saying these things, many people believed in him. Did they? Because all of us know we have seen people profess Christ with their mouths without a heart transformation. So how does Jesus test them? How does he weigh out these professions that they're actually believing him? He puts them to the test. You can say you believe in, in Christ, but if it's not rooted and founded in the truth, it won't last. This is exactly where we find ourselves this morning. And so Jesus is going to sift out those who say they believe in him by very difficult words. And as we'll see over the next couple of weeks, most of them who make these professions uh, are going to be calling him a demon pretty soon. That's what happens when you tell people the truth. They will call you a demon. It has happened. So open your Bibles to John chapter 8, starting in verse 30. 
And we're going to focus on 31 to 38 this morning. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham, and we have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say we will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I've seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. Let's pray. It is amazing that as Jesus speaks of his intimacy with the Father, we can come before the God of the universe crying, Abba, Father. And because of the Son who is the rightful heir, shed his blood for slaves, we can now be called children of God. This is the amazing truth of the gospel. And Lord, I pray this morning that we would stand on your word, that we would be convinced and convicted by it, that we would put nothing above you and what you have declared, that we would submit all of our ideas and our opinions and our feelings to you and your lordship over our lives and everything that we own. Because only in that is there true freedom. I pray for your spirit this morning to go before me, to work in us, that we would be transformed greater and greater into the image of Christ until the day when we are perfected in glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we just finished Romans on Wednesday. And you're going to see there's a lot of parallels to Romans in this passage. I'm going to bring out a few, uh, and I could bring out a lot more. And so you'll, you'll kind of see those along the way. There's a lot of themes here. But one of the things we're going to see right off the bat is of the, the crowd that was surrounding Jesus and, and he's teaching, there's going to be some that appear like they believe. And so there's a lot of debates among scholars about what is actually going on here. And do they really believe or not? So without getting too technical, I just want to give you an idea of the words that John uses. So the first word here in verse 30 of those saying these things, many believed. This is in the aorist tense in Greek. It means it's, it's a past tense. It's something that happened before, but it may not necessarily still be happening. And then again in verse 31, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, had believed, whenever you see had believed in the Bible, it is typically going to be a perfect tense. Meaning it's something that happened once in the past and may have some connection to what goes on in the future, but it does not have any sense of ongoing. So many times we can read this and say, oh, they believed, as if every time the word belief is used, it's exactly the same. If it was a present continuous belief, it would probably be translated believing uh, in either a present or participle tense. Again, that's as, as nerdy as I'm going to get. But I want you guys to understand that if there's confusion in the language, do these people actually believe or not? 
the, the verb tenses kind of give that away. And so what we see here is it's probably people who in their minds thought he's saying some good stuff. He's got some good ideas. Let me listen further. I believe Jesus says, do you really? So he says, if you abide in my word, then you are truly my disciples. This is the first thing we want to look at. True disciples. If you abide in my word, you cannot just abide one time. Abiding is continuous. You must remain in my word. It must happen over time. Those who find the living water that Jesus spoke spoke of, they keep drinking because there's life in it. And if you find God's word and you're truly his disciple, it becomes your lifeline. It sustains you. It's like the air you breathe. How could I live without God's word? If you are truly my disciples, you will abide in it. So the word disciple means learner. And if you are a true disciple, you are a learner over time. You will abide. I love what George Whitfield said. George Whitfield, the great evangelist in the first great awakening, he would preach to tens of thousands of people open area, this big booming voice. Sometimes a couple hundred thousand people would come to hear him in a field. And he would proclaim the gospel and he would tell them to repent for the forgiveness of your sins. And his friends would ask him afterward, how did it go last night? How many people were saved? Whitfield famously says, I'll tell you in six months. If you abide in my word, remain continuously, then you truly are my disciples. Your true character is a pattern of what you desire and do over time. Character is not just what happens once. It is a pattern of what you desire and do over time. So therefore, a believer in Christ is not marked by one fruitful season of Bible study and then they leave it alone. But they're also not marked by one fruitless season of Bible study. We all have those moments where we want to be in God's word, but we let the trials of life get in the way. We all have those seasons where we get really excited. And because it wasn't founded in anything real, it wears off. Those who abide in his word over time are his true disciples. That's why Paul tells us in Romans 5 that we can rejoice in hope and suffer. Because it is the suffering that produces endurance and the endurance that produces character. Those who abide will be able to endure and will develop Christ-like character because it happens over time. And in the ups and downs of life, we are able to grow. Our growth in Christ is not dependent on our circumstances, not dependent on one fruitful or fruitless season because we will all have some of both. But over time, God's word will grow in you richly. And what happens, he says here in verse 32, and if you abide in my word and you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. There's a double meaning here. First, if you abide in my word, you will know the truth, meaning you will know spiritual truths. You will know the eternal counsel of God. The more time you spend in God's word, the more time he will reveal himself to you and you will be you will know it and you will be convinced of it. But also you will know the truth. If you abide in the word, you spend enough time in God's word. You will know the truth, the way and the life, and he will reveal his truth to you. This is what happens in faithful Bible study. It renews you, it teaches you, it points you to the truth. And the truth will be exalted because he is worthy. Truth always points us to the person and work of Christ. 
hear me say this unequivocally. There is no lie on earth that can ever lead you to Christ. And every truth on earth, if you have eyes to see, will lead you to Christ. There's a saying that has made its way through the church throughout the centuries. Probably the first one to put it into these terms was Augustine in the fourth century. But he said, all truth is God's truth. That's why as believers, we can look up at the trees and say, God, you are great. We can look at new life when we hold a baby in our hands and say, God, you are great. When we see science and we see physics and we see art and creativity, we see, God, look how you have made us. All truth points us to Christ. No lies will ever point us to Christ. Because he is the source of all truth. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth. And the truth will set you free. These are both definitive languages. If you abide in my word, you will know the truth. And if you know the truth, it will set you free. These are definitive terms. What's the freedom he's speaking of here? If you need to be set free, you're probably not free right now. There is a bondage that you are in that you cannot be released from without God's word and without knowing the truth. And this is the life of the Christian. I am free in Christ. There is true freedom as a Christian. There is no bounds in what you can do and where you can go. But it doesn't mean that we are free to be foolish. There is freedom in Christ, but let's not forget where we received our freedom from. Who gave us our freedom? You don't want to spit in the face of the person who has given you freedom from bondage. So there is freedom in Christ. There's not foolishness in Christ. I think this is confusing in our culture because Americans are obsessed with freedom. And so this confuses the concept for us. Because this is the opposite of what most people assume, right? That becoming a Christian is the end of my freedom, right? That's what I thought. But what we really mean is, so you're saying I'm no longer free to sin. That's the fear. The fear is is not that that, that I don't want to be free. It's that I don't want to stop sinning. So you're saying I can't sin freely? No, you can, but you won't want to. When you do, the Holy Spirit will convict you. The Holy Spirit will make you miserable in it. But you are free to truly live. For the first time in Christ, you will know what true life is. No more being hindered by guilt, shame, and living for things that make you their slave. You can truly live. The truth will set us free. The truth will set us free from working to prove our value and identity. The truth will set us free from looking for completion in others. The truth will set us free from trying to escape and numb the pain. Truth will set us free from worry, emptiness, and superstition. And truth will set us free to eternal life in Christ. With meaning and purpose and love and value and an inheritance that Nothing can ever shake. This is the two-sided coin of freedom in Christ. We've been released from bondage. And we are freed to life. So let's recap. 
In these first couple of verses, what are the marks of a true disciple? And the order is important here. Follow Jesus' train of thought. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Recap here. Marks of a true disciple. If you abide in the word, in God's word, becoming hearers and doers, then you will know. You will know the word who is truth. And over time, you will be convinced of who he is and his truth that is revealed to us in scripture. So if you abide, then you will know, then you will be set free from Christ, the truth. And he will set you free from sin and death. True disciples abide in his word. They know who he is and they know that they have been set free. So, of course, the Jews get this layered theological analogy, right? Of course not. Verse 33, they answered, we are offspring of Abraham. And you have to know there is an arrogance in this statement. They're not just saying, hey, we're offspring of Abraham. No, we're offspring of Abraham. Their shoulders are back and their, their, their neck is straight. We're offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you will say we'll become free? Well, the truth is, the sons of Abraham, Israel, they've been enslaved plenty. And they've always been enslaved because of their sin. They're enslaved in Egypt. The, the Canaanites oppressed them. The Babylonians enslaved them. The Assyrians oppressed them. The Greeks oppressed them. And even though they're speaking in the present tense, we've never been slaves to anyone. You weren't free in Rome. You were under, you were under Caesar. You, they'd be under Nero very soon. They were under Caligula around this time. You couldn't come and go as you pleased. The Romans gave them the, the appearance of freedom. They let them worship. They let them do what they wanted to do. But they had no power. They had no real freedom. The, the Romans were, had them under their thumb. So they forgot that before this, there was the Maccabean revolt and several other revolts because the Jews couldn't stand the Romans. And after this, there will be plenty more because they hated being slaves under the Romans. And these are their words, not mine. But in their blindness, in their arrogance, they don't even recognize their physical slavery. How could they recognize spiritual slavery? And this is the reality for most people. They don't recognize spiritual slavery. And they are offended at the idea. Me, a slave? Because you don't, you don't wear shackles doesn't mean that you're not a slave. And you can't be a disciple of Christ if you don't want to be free. They didn't want to be free. They weren't slaves. That is another mark of a disciple of Christ is you know that apart from him, you are a slave to your sin. So how does Jesus answer them? Does he give them a history lesson? He could have, like I just did, but he doesn't. Because Jesus is wiser than I am. Jesus answered them, truly, truly. We know this. Whenever he says truly, truly, pay attention. I'm telling you truly twice. Amen, amen, pay attention. I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. There's intentional language here. Everyone, seed of Abraham or not, if you practice sin, you are a slave to sin. We saw this last week. You are a slave to sin by nature and continuous, willful, sinful acts. Now, I could go on into this great explanation, uh, but as so often happens, whenever I read 
Arthur Pink, he always has something better to say than I could. So I'm going to read what he says about everyone who practices sin, because I think he touches every base here. So this is what he says. He said, here is one thing which distinguishes the Christian from the non-Christian. The Christian sins, and he sins daily. But the, not, but the non-Christian does nothing but sin. The Christian sins, but he also repents. Moreover, he does good works and brings forth the fruit of the Spirit. But the life of the ungenerate man is one un, in an unbroken course of sin. Water cannot rise above its own level. I love that picture. Being a sinner by nature, man is a sinner by practice and cannot be anything else. A corrupt tree cannot bear, bring forth good fruit. A poisoned fountain cannot send forth sweet waters. Because the sinner has no spiritual nature within him. Because he is totally depraved and in complete bondage to sin. Because he does nothing for God's glory. Every action is polluted. Every deed unacceptable to the Holy One. It's a great picture of one who is in slavery to sin. Those slaves to sin, they live for one master. They work for one master. And sin is not a gracious master because sin lies to you. Sin tells you, I have your best interest in mind. Do this because I know what's right for you. But at its heart, deception itself is a bondage. That's why Satan is called the deceiver. He doesn't need to put you in shackles to make you his. He just has to deceive you. He just has to make you believe him instead of God. And there, the spiritual shackles are a lot harder to break than the physical ones. Slaves have an appearance. Slaves to sin have an appearance of freedom. But it's a lie. Just like alcoholics have the appearance of freedom. Saying, I'm free to drink as much as I want. There's no freedom in that. There's a young man I'm dealing with right now. Um, it's sad to look in his face and say, I want to stop drinking, but I can't. It has this hold on me. And he, right now he wants it more than, than Christ. And he is an outward slave to it. And it is heartbreaking to look in the face of someone who is powerless to his own sinful desires who at one time claimed the name of Christ. And now he doesn't know. Because it's interesting here, this word for slave, doulos in the Greek, has an interesting component. The, the slave is someone who's associated with an ownership status. They were owned by someone else. They had dependence on someone else. They were required to be obedient to someone else. But the most important part of this term is they, could, they were obedient to a single master. They were owned by a single master. They were obedient to a single master. And they were dependent on a single master. Jesus tells us the same thing. You cannot serve two masters. So something apart from Christ has made itself Lord over you. If you've made it Lord over you, you cannot serve Christ at the same time. And this is what's incredible about this analogy that comes up. Because Jesus flows right into this. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. 
So we don't know much about slavery culture in the ancient Near East in the first century. Our minds come to think of uh, kind of imperialistic slavery, which we've seen in, in, in our country and in recent history. Slavery was very different back then. You had still had some aspects of that, but quite often slaves lived pretty good lives. If, if you worked for a gracious master, you could have you could have belongings. Uh, your your family would live with you. You would eat at the family's table most often. We see a good example of this. I think it's Luke seven, where the centurion comes to Jesus and he comes himself because he's worried about his servant, someone who serves in his house is sick, he's dying, and he comes to Jesus. So there was time that, that you could um, sell yourself or work your way out of slavery very often. Many times you would sell yourself into slavery to pay off a debt. And for, for many, being a slave in a rich person's home was better than any job they could get anywhere else. So this is not as difficult to understand, or excuse me, uh, difficult to, to compare as it is to our, um, our ideas. But here's some things we, we need to see that the contrast here is really important. The slave lives in the house. The slave often eats with the family. The slave from the outside seems like he belongs. But the real difference is the slave could be sold at any time. The slave cannot remain forever. The slave does not bear the master of the house's name. The slave has no inheritance. The slave does not remain in the house forever, but the son remains forever. Here's the contrast here. The son on the outside, looks exactly the same. He lives in the house. He works in the house. He'd eat at the same table, but he shares the master's name. He has an inheritance and will always be a part of that family. Nothing can change that. And then spiritually speaking, this is a great parallel for us. Because a slave and a son will live right alongside each other. And there will seem to be no differences. Every day we walk by slaves and sons. Both remaining in the same house. You want to sit next to a slave who, in, in church, who will always be a slave to their sin, going through the motions. But Paul addresses this. Turn to Galatians chapter 4. Anyone who ever tells you that Paul has a different message than Jesus has not read Paul or Jesus. Definitely has not read them together. All Paul does is expound on what Jesus has already taught us. Galatians chapter 4, starting in verse 1. He makes this connection to being an offspring of Abraham through faith, heirs according to promise. Here's what he says, Galatians 4.1. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But... He is under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. 
that, ladies and gentlemen, is the biblical doctrine of adoption. One of my favorites. So I get to talk about truth and adoption on the same Sunday. It must be my birthday. Because <laughs> in the same way that the son remains in the house forever, if you are an heir with Christ, you remain in the house forever. Because our debt was paid in full and we were bought into the house. We were not brought into the house. We were bought into the house. The only way to be removed from slavery is the debt must be paid in full. This is why the cross is so important. This is why the gospel is so important. Because in order to be free indeed, you must be free in full. And the, paid, and the price must be paid, whether money or blood. And every sin must be atoned for and accounted for either by Christ or us. And so when the son says you are free, the son, the owner of the house, the rightful heir of everything says you are free. Because he paid the price. Because he bought you from slavery into the family. Made you a child of God when he didn't have to be. This is exactly what Jesus is getting at here. The slave does not remain in the house forever, but the son remains forever. So, if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. We love this verse. But get the context here. It's great to memorize scripture, and I encourage you to do that. But when people pluck out a verse here or there, it can be helpful. But it has so much greater meaning if we remember that last week we were dead in our sins. And we, were, and we read right before that that we practiced sin before Christ. And we deserve to be slaves, serving only one master. We did not deserve a gracious master. We did not deserve to be called sons. But if the son, the rightful heir, the only natural born son in the father's house, says that you are free. I will die for you. Pay the price you cannot pay. Then you are free indeed. Many times we forget that naturally we are slaves to sin. We are born into slavery. Turn to Romans chapter 6. I want you to get this, and we need to know this like the back of our hand. This is the gospel. We are slaves to sin apart from Christ. And only by faith in Christ can you have new life. It's exactly what Paul gets at in Romans chapter 6. I'm going to start reading in verse 6. Everybody with me? Romans 6, verse 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that, circle that, the body of sin might be brought to nothing. You cannot serve your sin and serve Christ. It must be brought to nothing so that we could no longer be enslaved to sin. A slave cannot be removed from bondage if he doesn't want the shackles to be removed. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. 
We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. This is powerful. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. This is where all the saints should shout hallelujah. So you also. In every way, we are compared to Christ in this passage. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Jesus Christ. This is the amazing reality of the gospel. This is why every week we talk about Christ in him crucified. Because if this does not penetrate your heart, if this does not break your heart, that it was your sin that nailed him to the cross, that it was your death, you deserve to die. And if it doesn't bring you the greatest joy that when he rose again, we rose with him through faith. I don't know what you believe in. But if you do believe that, it's the greatest news anyone will ever hear and can ever hear. That dead people rise again. Slaves become free. And not only are they freed, but they are brought into the home of the master. And they become sons. And they become heirs forever. This is a beautiful gospel that we have. But far too often we ask people to leave behind what they consider freedom. Without telling them of the true freedom that awaits them in Christ. And to make sure that we remind them they are dead in their sin, but also remind them of what true freedom and life in Christ looks like. Because it is promised. Why can we believe this? Because it is based in the word of God. The word became flesh so that we could know this. And we can rest on this. And if you can't rest on, on this, then Jesus is a liar and Paul is a liar and we ought to throw all this out. But if you can rest on it, what does that mean? So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. One more thing I want you to think about in this passage, or in, in this verse. Who does all the work here? The Son. The Son does the work. If the Son sets you free, the Son pays the price. The Son doesn't need any, any siblings. But he pays the price to make you sons of the master. The son does the work, but the benefit belongs to us. You are free indeed. Even though the son does the work, the freedom truly belongs to us. That is powerful. The son does the work, but the freedom truly belongs to us. So he goes on to say, I didn't forget your little statement about being sons of Abraham. Oh, he says you're 37. I know that you are sons of Abraham. Essentially, so what? I know you're sons of Abraham. He trusted in me. He trusted in faith. If you were truly his sons, you wouldn't have murder in your hearts. You wouldn't want to kill me. He's going to go on to say, you're going to look more like your father. You do what he says. Paul tells us in Romans 4 that the true sons of Abraham are sons according to faith. True sons believe the same way Abraham did. 
So they are signing their own death warrant here. They're putting the, own, the nails in their own coffin by saying, we are sons of Abraham. Well, if you are, believe like Abraham did. Not have murderous thoughts in your heart toward God and his anointed. The language is interesting here. I know that you're offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. Don't skip over that. You can only serve one master. And if your heart, if your body being a temple to what you worship is so full of sin and death and hatred, there is no room for God's word. There cannot be a house divided. There is no place for my word in you because you're already full. You're full of yourself and you're full of your own sin. He goes on to say, I speak of what I've seen with my father. And you do what you've heard from your father. Jesus is always intentional on what he says. Two important statements here. I speak what I have seen of my father. This is not hearsay. I speak what I've seen. I stand in the presence of God. I speak what I have seen. I know the throne. As the son of man, I have stood with the ancient of days. I am the rightful heir to the throne. I speak of what I have seen. I bear witness because my witness is true because I've stood in the place where you think you worship. I am a true son. I know the master. The master knows me and I always live to please him. But you, I've seen with my father, I, I speak of what I've seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. This is interesting. He sees and he speaks. They just do what they, have, what they hear. These are slaves following orders. They have not seen, but they still follow orders. You are a slave who has no choice but to do what the father of lies tells you to do. Get into that next week. Your actions are dictated by your sin nature. You can only do what has been told to you. The same little slithering voice that Adam and Eve listened to in the garden speaks in the ear of every slave to sin. Follow me. I will make you like God. I know what's best for you. God doesn't care about you. They are doing what they have always heard. So how do we conclude this morning? A couple quick things to keep in mind. There's a lot here. I wanted to spend three messages on this. The truth tests and reveals. With the truth comes light and clarity. Cannot have the light of life without truth to shed the light on the darkness. And in the gospel, there is no middle ground. Either you love Jesus or you want him crucified because you want to remain in your sinning. There is no middle ground. We either submit to him as Lord or we say die because I want to continue in sin. Satan is a liar. Sin is a liar. Sin is deception by its very nature. It lies to you. You cannot Trust the things that promise you immediate gratification and never deliver. 
It's the definition of insanity to keep going to these same things over and over and over again. And Satan has been doing the same thing since day one. Did God really say, don't trust God, trust me? Because just like Adam and Eve chose to believe that little slithering voice, they also chose the freedom to be like God. But they also chose the freedom of shame and death and toil at their hands and to live being unfulfilled the rest of their days and to know death. But in the sun, there's truth and there's freedom. Through Christ, by faith in Christ and him only, can your debt be paid? Can you be bought from slavery to sonship? And through Christ, we are adopted as sons. Sons know the truth. Sons know the author of the truth. They embrace it. They run to it. And they know that by the truth, which is revealed through Jesus Christ, they will have life and life everlasting in the Father's house. Because they're no longer slaves, but sons. Let's pray. Lord, I am at a loss. I'm at a loss. I, I don't know what else to say. I'm so thankful that even though in my life all I ever wanted was to be a slave to my own sins, but you sent your son for me and changed my desires and set me free. And I share with every believer in here we can say, hallelujah, we have been set free. Free to live with you. Free to eat at your table. Free to be called sons. Free to bear your name. Free to receive an inheritance that will never perish. That is true freedom and that is the only freedom and everything else is a lie that comes from the father of lies. Lord, help us to trust you. Help us to abide in your word, to see you and know you in your word, and rest in the freedom that we enjoy with you as your children. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.